Welcome to Strictly Business, Variety's weekly podcast featuring conversations with industry leaders about the business of media and entertainment. This is Shirley Halperin, executive editor of Music, with an episode dedicated to Variety's music mogul of the year, Scooter Braun. Scooter Braun is the rare music business insider with a high profile outside of his industry. Since 2009, he's been making headlines alongside the artists he represents, pop stars like Justin Bieber, Ariana Grande, Demi Lovato, and for a time, Kanye West. Along the way, he's built his company, Ithaca Holdings, into a formidable entertainment powerhouse with divisions encompassing TV and film projects, a record label, publishing companies, and investments in tech, apparel, social media, and many more future-forward ventures. In June 2021, it was announced that HYBE, the South Korean entertainment giant which brought the boy band BTS to the world, was merging with Ithaca to create what Scooter calls a worldwide company overnight. The deal came in at just over a billion dollars, allowing Scooter entry into an even more exclusive club of self-made industry titans. All this came at a challenging time for Scooter in that he was adjusting to life and work during COVID and still weathering the aftershocks of a very public battle with Taylor Swift. Scooter Braun talks about these and many more topics after the break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So, buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So, how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic, oracle.com slash strategic. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself, but we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs 
programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I dot com. As the story goes, Scooter Braun was tooling around YouTube one night in 2007 when he happened upon a video of a 12-year-old kid busking in a Stratford, Ontario street singing a Neo song. Scooter was blown away by what he heard. That boy was Justin Bieber, and he since laid claim to having toured the world several times over, amassed the most followers of any musician on Twitter, 113 million and counting, and notched platinum plus sales for each of the six studio albums he's released since 2010. Justin is but one of some two dozen clients managed by Scooter's company, SB Projects, including Jay Balvin, Carly Kloss, and Lil Dicky, the star of the FX show Dave. And managing talent represents just a fraction of the business Scooter oversees or invests in. In fact, the last few years have been especially fruitful for Scooter, who not only became a father to three, but also closed a trio of highly lucrative deals. The first was in 2019 when he purchased Big Machine Label Group, the Nashville record company that was longtime home to Taylor Swift, in addition to country acts such as Florida Georgia Line and Thomas Rhett. What should have been a straightforward transaction, where Scooter is acquiring a company that owns valuable assets, like the master recordings of Taylor Swift's first six studio albums, turned into anything but as the two battled on social media and in the press. To try and encapsulate the complexities of music copyrights is challenging enough, but adding to it the he said, she said, opposing narratives involving Kanye West, Kim Kardashian, and Justin Bieber, and your head just might explode. So I'm going to spare you, dear listener, and direct you to Google and to Variety.com for all the details. But at its most basic level, the war of words involved allegations of bullying on both sides. Taylor Swift labeled Scooter a bully for what she perceived was stealing her hard-earned IP from under her without reasonable terms for her to buy it back. Scooter denies her version of events leading up to the purchase of her catalog and also says he was bullied by the thousands of Taylor Swift fans that came after him for wronging their favorite singer, escalating to the point of death threats against Scooter and his family. Taylor Swift has since responded by diligently and very publicly recreating her older albums one by one as re-recording restrictions expire. Scooter, meanwhile, sold the Swift Masters to private equity firm Shamrock Capital in 2020 for $300 million, netting around $160 million in the deal and divesting himself of some of the drama. Scooter turned 40 on June 18, 2021, and now that he's been able to focus and work more on himself, he seems to be at peace with the past. It made me think back to the first time I became aware of Scooter Braun. It was 2009, and Justin Bieber was scheduled to make an appearance at a Long Island mall to sign autographs. When 10,000 people showed up, it became an unmanageable, near-riot situation, and Scooter was arrested for endangering the lives of children by not calling off the event swiftly and publicly. This is where our conversation, held in his Santa Monica office, picks up. 
So I was thinking back about the first thing that you and I did together, and mm -hmm. it was actually that mall <laughs> riot. Really? In Long Island. Wow. That was like the first time I'd heard your name and like <laughs> no criminal record for that, right? No, I got expunged. Yeah. I was arrested, but I, it got expunged. It was refusal to tweet. <laughs> so, Scooter, thank you so much for being here on thank Strictly you, Business. Your family's history is super interesting. Your grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Your dad was ostensibly a refugee um, and a self-made American success who you know, really provided first-generational wealth to his children. As did my mom. My mom was an orthodontist, and she was a part of that. Got it. And you have two adopted brothers? I have two adopted brothers uh, and two biological siblings, a brother and a sister, and we're all siblings. So tell us a little bit about growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, right? Yeah, we, we grew up in Coscop, which is a part of Greenwich. Um, the part of town that I grew up in was a very well-known, like, working-class Italian neighborhood. What were your aspirations as a kid? I just wanted to play basketball. Um, I was on the Coscop Crushers football team. Um, I played soccer. I played baseball. I played a hundred different sports. My dad was coaching and really into it. And uh, I discovered basketball and no one told me that, you know, I probably wouldn't get the God-given abilities to go to the next level. So I used to um, watch this guy named Mark Price who played for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And he was quick and he had a jump shot. All I wanted to do was be Mark Price as a little kid. Um, but was he sh like a shorter basketball player? He was a, he was a six foot one white guy. Okay. <laughs> um, Relatively speaking, then yes. So I just like the way he played. I was a shooting point guard. I'd love to shoot. You know, uh, John Stockton was a pass first point guard. Mark was a uh, shoot first. And my brother was more like Stockton and I was more like Price. Um, but I, um, yeah, I just loved playing basketball. I loved being with my friends. Um, there was a time where I wanted to be in comedy and I used to watch Comedy Central and take notes on that. Um, but I just, uh, I wanted as a kid, I, as I got older, I just wanted to have a meaningful life. I didn't really know what it was going to look like. I just wanted to do something special. Tell me about your brothers. Kids always lived in and out of our house my whole life. We had a Russian family who immigrated, lived with us for a couple months. Because um, my dad was a refugee, uh, he always wanted to keep a room in the house for others. And my mom was the same way. My mom was a very giving person. So, you know, we had a kid named Spoon who was from Milwaukee who lived with us for, I think, 11 months. Um, my friend Dale lived with us for a little while. Kids were always in and out of our house. Um, and when Sam and Cornelio came along, they were from Mozambique. Um, they had been lied to about why they were coming to the United States. They weren't siblings, but they knew each other. Uh, and they were living in an abandoned tenement in Philadelphia um, in a really bad situation. And they would rather return to Mozambique at that point, to a third world country, than stay in the United States. Um, and a coach out of Philadelphia called my dad and knew that my dad ran an AU basketball program that didn't get paid off and did right by the kids. and got them a good situation. So he said, hey, I don't have room for these guys, but they're good kids. They can really play. You know, can you take them for a tournament and help them out? And my dad said yes. And we met them and they played with my brother, Adam. Um, and then my dad was going to help get him into boarding school. He was working on figuring out visas and all kinds of different things. And Cornelio, who couldn't even speak English, um, said in broken English, can we stay? And my dad said, yeah, for a couple more weeks, we'll we figure this out. And he goes, no, forever. And we had one family meeting 
My parents had always talked about adopting and um, we voted as a family and they became my siblings. And uh, Sam spoke a little bit better English. Cornelio um, actually learned English watching BET. He says like he would always, he loves Jay-Z and he used to watch Jay-Z. And I remember he came to me one time and he's like, what is the word whatcha? And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, Jay-Z says whatcha. And I was like, oh, like what you want to do? And, <laughs> and I explained it to him. But um, it was really interesting because we didn't have trust funds. We weren't those kids. We were going to public school in a really nice town. Um, my parents provided a really good life for us, a life they never had because um, they both came from, from very humble beginnings. And um, I had a little bit of guilt in that, but I remember um, Cornelio's first day of school at the public high school where we went, he was in like this ESL program because he was learning English. And as they pushed him from room to room, they would give him books and put it in his backpack. And then he got on the bus and he was home and he was so scared that first day. And we're like, what's wrong with songs? So Sam goes, where we come from, there's not enough books to go home with them. So he didn't know what to do in each classroom. They would push him to the next classroom and he didn't know where to put the books back. And he thinks he's going to get in trouble because he took the books home. And when you have that kind of experience and, you know, people always say what a wonderful thing, you know, your family did for these guys. What a wonderful thing they did for us. You know, they, they came into our lives and they gave us a perspective that we never had before. And, you know, um, they changed us forever. You went to Emory University in Georgia and became sort of a fixture on the Atlanta scene. From club promotion to party planning, the hustle was real. Were you seeing a career in the music business at that point? You know, what happened was um, I didn't like being broke. And when I went to college, my parents were like, you figured out. So I kind of used basketball to get into Emory, but I didn't really have much intention of playing. Mm -hmm. I sold fake IDs first. It was my friend sold the fake IDs. I was the one who marketed them. Um, and I made some real money with that. And then he broke my rules on how we would get caught. So I stopped doing that immediately. And he did get caught later. Um, and I started being around parties. And my aunt sent me this article about this guy, Danny A., Danny's Angels in the New York Post. And Danny A. and I are friends now to this day. And I read about this guy and I was like, oh, you can really turn this promotion thing into a business. And I started really taking the party thing seriously. And I would make my money on Thursday nights with you know the college kids. And then, I, um, and then on Tuesday nights, I would go out and be like the only white boy in the club and really kind of learn from this guy, Alex Gitawan, um, who was an Ethiopian immigrant who started as a parking lot attendant who became the biggest club owner in Atlanta. Um, and at the time he was a promoter and he was just so fascinated to see a white boy in the line. Um, and I was brought there by this actor, Jason Weaver a lot of kind of storytelling, um, who met me in one of my parties and goes, you want to see how the other side live? And at the time, Atlanta was very segregated, but I came from a background where I was very comfortable in different environments, whether the black, white, Latin, like my best friends, Colombians, you know, growing up. So for me, it was, yeah, sure, whatever, let's go. Um, and then I read the book, The Operator, which is still in my office to this day. And uh, while David Geffen hates the book, it inspired me because it showed me someone like me, who was flawed, who wasn't the biggest or the strongest or necessarily the smartest, but someone who could do the work. And I remember getting to this page where David's discussing, everyone wanted to sign John Lennon's solo career. And I'm sitting there going, go to Yoko Ono, go to Yoko Ono. And I turned the page and it says, he went to Yoko Ono and he signed it. And I said, I can do this. And um, 
that was my path into music. And very shortly after, I started working with Shaka Zulu and Ludacris on their come up. And then Jabrain Dupree came to one of my parties and said, you got more potential and made me the marketing manager at SOSODEF and then a VP, and I was 20 years old. And I dropped out. And on one side, I was this college kid. On the other side, I'm this marketing you know, whiz kid for Jermaine Dupree. And on the other side, I'm a street party promoter with a gun on my ankle and a gun by my bedside because I'm a cash party promoter in, at the time, a very serious, dangerous city. I do feel like you had a bit of a leg up by being from Atlanta or from having spent your college years in Atlanta. Well, till I was 30. I spent yes. my entire, 12, mm -hmm. my entire adult life until I was 30 years old was in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, well, it was like kind of a prescient move, I feel like, because... Atlanta is the capital of hip hop right now. And your artists, even though they lean more pop, they have those R&B tones that like, you know, you're not getting shit for because it feels authentic. And I, I feel like it's because you came up through Atlanta and you know what that, that music really is. Um, no, I just, I think Atlanta's special. Jermaine always says like that training in Atlanta, it's just so different than being out here or being in New York, like it's just a different thing when you're in Atlanta. And that's why so many great execs and so much great music comes out of that city. It just has a culture to it that's uniquely its own. Mm -hmm. And I will always be grateful to that city. That city, that city took me from being a boy and made me a man. All right, so towards the end of your time in Atlanta, it was 2009, it was sort of like a make or break year for you. Uh, you had an artist that was bubbling under, Asher Roth, I Love College. Um, and that wasn't bubbling under. That was number one on iTunes. But we were kicking ass. <laughs> <laughs> we were bubbling with our mixtape, The Greenhouse Effect. That's what I think really got all the attention. And then you discovered this kid on YouTube busking on a Stratford, Ontario street named Justin Bieber. And at the same time, you almost went out of business. I had enough money for 13 months before I went broke. And I was like, I'm not throwing any more parties. Let's go. And everyone thought I was killing it, but... You know, to build this rep, I was kind of faking it till I made it. I found Asher and I found Justin and I put Asher and his boys in a house we called the greenhouse around the corner from me, which is a piece of crap. And I put Justin and his mom with Aaron Wren's furniture that I paid for in a townhouse literally around the corner. Asher would babysit Justin. We got to 11 months and Asher was buzzing with, you know, the mixtape and Justin, I was developing, but we weren't there yet. We were building up his YouTube. And um, I was like, I'm going to go broke. This is going to be done. I got nothing. And my dad called to check in on me, and I didn't take any money from them since I was 18. So suddenly, you know, he's talking to me, and, and I just remember breaking down, saying, man, I'm a failure. And he kind of listened, and I just, I couldn't believe it all poured out of me. And he said, look, you haven't listened to us in a very long time. And you've come this far. You might as well see it through. You said you got two more months. Who knows? And the next day, Asher walked in my apartment and said, I got someone to play you. And he played me half of the hook of I Love College. And I, because I was a big college party promoter, I knew what to do. We got the, you know, the old college tee from, you know, Animal House. And like, we created this whole campaign. We had no money. So I'm like doing it on the fly with like friends. And the song just explodes. We go down to South by Southwest and I'm like, man, we gotta, we gotta get this publishing deal because it could save the company. And I, um, I put Sony Publishing at one restaurant and I had a meeting with her, but I booked the Universal deal next door mm -hmm. and they were like well where are you going next and i literally made sure they saw each other on purpose and we drove what was going to be a two hundred fifty thousand dollar deal up to a million dollar deal 
with a bidding war within three days. And the commission of that saved the company. And that's why we say success and failure live next door to each other. That's why I have such a hard time letting go of things. Because it's just that little bit more that no one else believes in and no one else sees and something special can happen. That's like a real like faith in the universe kind of thing. I'm learning now at this age to give a little more trust in the universe and let it do some of the work. Mm-hmm. Back then, I thought I had to force every issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we just signed the kid Leroy. And when we met with his lawyer, Robert, turns out that the lawyer who did that paperwork for that deal is Robert. And it was a complete full circle moment. All these years later, we're doing this deal. And uh, this guy had no idea the role he played in changing my life. Well, you said you have trouble letting go, but you don't have trouble having very long-term relationships with your clients. Talking about Justin in 2009, Ariana Grande, Tori Kelly, Carly Rae Jepsen. These are all artists you've been with for the better part of a decade. What is the key to sustaining long-term relationships with talent? Have a real relationship. You know, the key is caring. There's that line in Batman. I think it's like, if you do it right long enough, even you become the villain. And there are people who don't understand me. There are people who say what they want to say, but I'm proud none of those people know me uh, or have spent any kind of quality time with me or have met me more than three or four times. The people that I know, the people that I've spent time with, I care about them. I'm going to have relationships with them for the rest of my life. And those relationships are allowed to change, you know, and alter and go from being this role in their life to that role in their life and go in different places. And I think that's how I've been able to maintain and not only relationships with the artists, but with executives in this company. People are allowed to grow and evolve. And if you stay stagnant, even if you care deeply about them, things can change and you can grow. But if you can, you can evolve the relationship, you have an opportunity to keep some special people in your life. Recently, you closed a huge deal with HYBE, South Korean entertainment giant, during which you allotted $50 million uh, in stock to be gifted to your artists and longtime employees and friends, too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, people who helped me along the way. Tell me about why you did that. The people who know me will understand this. I don't care a lot about money. I think money is an avenue to freedom. I don't think it gives you happiness. I think it can allow you more opportunities for happiness. But I also believe with the foundation of the things that I've set up long-term, I'm, I believe at this point, I don't think I'm going to ever have to worry about money. And I don't think I've had to worry about that for a long time because of certain blessings and things that have happened in my life, both within this industry and things that I've done outside of this industry. And oof, this next statement will be slightly controversial. When I did the big machine deal, it was a very good deal. I was able to recognize that masters were heavily undervalued, that big machine had an incredible catalog of many, many artists. And I was able to get in a value where I even told Scott Borchetta, you should take stock because I don't want you resenting me, you know, because this, I think this is going to be worth a lot more in the future, which it's, it's shown to be. I wanted to work with every single person involved in that company and every single person associated to that company. I was actually very excited to do so. Certain things happened afterwards that I was not expecting, obviously. People can say whatever, but I wasn't able to give an opportunity to actually ever get to know people were upset by the deal. I thought everybody was going to be happy. You know, I thought that everyone in the deal, for what I was being told, was going to feel like a winner. I regret and it makes me sad that Taylor had that reaction to the deal. I thought even she would be happy because at the time, her dad made a tremendous amount of money in the deal. 
Uh, he was one of the shareholders of Big Machine and made millions and millions of dollars as part of the transaction. I was told that everyone was going to be all good. And then the deal happened and that wasn't the case. And I learned an important lesson in that, that this time around when I did the Hive deal, I was going to make sure that all parties were happy. I wasn't going to assume that I knew best, that, you know, oh, this is going to work because that was my mistake. Now, do I think I deserve what happened or anyone does? No, I don't think anyone deserves to be attacked publicly. My personal opinion, if you don't know someone, pick up the phone, have a conversation. And that's why I haven't talked about that a lot. Uh, the only time I actually did speak about it is when my my wife and kids were being attacked to a point where it was very damaging um, and scary. But I, I wish everyone in that scenario still the best. And, you know, you're not going to make everyone happy in life. But I learned going into the Hive deal that this time around, I'm going to make sure everyone feels good. And the artists I worked with weren't entitled to cash or stock. My employees that didn't have equity weren't entitled to cash and stock. My friends who helped me along the way weren't entitled to cash and stock. But I, I knew that I was going to do very well in the deal. I'll continue to do well. I'll always do well. And this time around, I wanted everyone to know I took care of them and felt good about what was happening. So I thought a lot about it because of what happened before. You know, we learn from our past. And I felt really good. And I felt really good that my partner encouraged it. You know, when I talked to Bang about it, I said, I'm going to give 50 million of my stock away. He said, you know, I did something similar with BTS when I took the company public. And it was nice to be able to call artists and friends and them say, well, what's, what do I got to do? <laughs> and I'm and literally nothing. You've already done it. You've been here for me. We're going to continue to be there for each other. And now you know that everything I do over here, you're participating in. And um, I hope it encourages other executives. You know, there's a lot of companies going public now. There's a lot of companies being sold now. And I hope it encourages other executives to make sure they take care of their people. Just because you're not obligated to doesn't mean you shouldn't. It was a gift. It was the right thing to do. Well, tell us more about the relationship with HYBE and how do you envision Ithaca, which is the holding company of SBP, how do you see the two companies working together? Um, very well. <laughs> I just got back from Korea myself a couple weeks ago. Look, they're building an amazing gaming unit. Um, there's a tremendous amount of synergies. They're in the East, we're in the West. Coming together makes us a global company. The, one of the things I really liked about Bang is that like us, he allows creativity to take its lead. So, you know, I asked him, I was like, do you expect our artists to collaborate with your artists? And he goes, if they want to, hmm. you know, and cause he's a producer, he's a creative himself. So I think it, you know, we we're in a position where we've created a lot of leverage for all of our artists. We have a lot of visibility on the worldwide market now. We have a lot of visibility on understanding all of the deals that are in the marketplace. And I think we have a very unique opportunity. I mean, looking at the chart this week, I was like, oh, like one, five, and six. Like, you know, and, and in my career, I've had multiple times where it's been like a lot of that between the artists, but, you know, getting to see the high artists coming in and the timing of it. And I got to sit and meet BTS, biggest group in the world and could not be more humble, great guys. I mean, I really enjoyed my time with them and, and the conversation. It was great. We've, we talked about this, about how many companies have failed bringing East and West together. And I think the difference is this time, just being honest with you, I think a lot of American arrogance has been the reason why we've failed in the past. Like, we know best, and this is the way it should be. And I told my whole team, this is about relationship and humbling ourselves to the fact that we are all partners. And it's not going to be about ego. It's about what's right and what's the best thing and what can we build together long term. 
And I have a tremendous amount of respect for my new partners. I know they have it for me. I know they have it for our artists, just in the way they've responded to certain things already. And it, to me, it's business as usual, but with just more firepower. You mentioned Kid Leroy, who's the most recent signing to SBP. So he's a 17-year-old, real talent from Australia, huge song right now without you. Tell me what you see in him. I think he's incredible. When the world finds out his true story and what he's been through, it's pretty remarkable. I think he's wise way beyond his years. He's seen a lot of things in a very short amount of time and had to respond to those things. I think he's a brilliant songwriter and producer. Justin recognized his talent pretty early, and they have some cool stuff cooking. But um, I just think he has it. You know, Ariana has it. Justin has it. Like, I mean, all these artists I get to work with, Baldwin, like, they have it, right? When you want to be a superstar, there's only so many mics in the room, and there's a lot of talent around. And you got to be one of those people you don't care you're grabbing that mic. First meeting, I was like, wow, he's grabbing that mic. And he has a real vision. And I think we're in a unique place where the managers we are today is actually better suited for him than the managers we were 10 years ago because he has such a vision and we're able to, we have a lot of team and really great people to help him execute it. Uh, but I think he's really special. Are you finding that the music business is attracting young executive talent? The music business will always attract young executive talent. You know, there's going to be more and more people that are like, wait a second, I can make more money in crypto. You know, there's always going to be those people who are going to make, you know, I want to go into tech. Like the ceiling in music is actually only so high when you come to financial success. It is not, it's, it's from where it was. I mean, we're seeing the new valuations on Universal. It's going up and up and up. But comparatively to other industries, it is a pretty low ceiling. But the energy of the music industry, there is no ceiling. The magic to be associated to these incredible creatives these writers, these producers, these artists, like there's such magic being in a place where you're in a studio and you're watching something being created. And then a year later, you're sitting in an elevator and someone's humming next to you and you're realizing, wait, that's the song. I was there. I witnessed that. Or being at a concert and seeing everybody sing those words. Like there's just a magic to this industry that is unlike anything else. And that's why you're going to attract a, a guy who used to paint cars like Mo, you know, to come through and create Marshmallow. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to, you know, attract a Justin Lubliner who's doing marketing and he puts all his energy into a Billie Eilish and Phineas. Like, you're going to attract young, amazing talent to something that's so magical. Always. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back with more from Variety's Music Mogul of the Year, Scooter Braun. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs 
programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I.com. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. And we're back with Scooter Braun. So, Scooter, you were an early investor in Uber, Spotify, Lyft, Dropbox. Um, more recently, you've backed tech entities like Clubhouse, Noom, Wave, uh, Row, Coupang. Yeah, Coupang is it's like the Amazon of Korea. It actually just went public. It's an incredible company. It has nothing to do with my most recent deal with Hybe, but I actually invested in uh, 2013 because I was with uh, Sai in Korea for Gangnam style. Mm. And uh, I had a headache and his wife ordered me a Tylenol and some guy knocked on the door and handed her Tylenol. And I was like, what is that? Well, how do you decide what to invest in? It's like falling in love, you know? It's like, I always compare falling in love to like finding an artist. You just kind of know your gut tells you. Um, sometimes it's you see an, an opening in the marketplace. Sometimes like I invested in something called GoPuff a while back, like you know, met the founders and I was like, wow, these guys are special. Met them through my friend Michael. Um, Roe, my partners in TQ, which is what I do all my investing through now. Andrew and Schuster, they were able to identify Roe and Zach, who I think is one of the best young CEOs in the world. And that's a telemedicine company. It's just explosive and changing the whole world of telemedicine. And that's it. Sometimes you find a founder who reminds you of a great entrepreneur. You know, I did this company, Liquid IV, with TQ and uh, Brandon you know, you just could tell he was one of these guys that was going to make it happen. I remember becoming friends with Whitney from Bumble. And I was like, no matter what, she's going to figure this out. And um, it's a unique experience. You meet people that understand the burn the ships mentality. This mentality that like the soldiers would arrive on the shores of their enemies and the generals would say, burn the ships, burn our own ships. The only way you're going home is in the ships of our enemies. There's no turning back. And when you meet entrepreneurs who have that mentality, I remember the first time I met Travis from Uber, he had it. Funny enough, his competitor, John over at Lyft, had it also. It's a very unique thing. And I've always tried to look for that and follow my gut. Um, and then when I met Schuster and Andrew, it went to a completely different level because we have this amazing fund now, TQ, something that's one of the most successful things in my life. And to have such incredibly seasoned investors as my partners and Andrew and Schuster, we all bring a unique thing to the table. And um, 
been able to now make investments into so many incredible companies from Roe to Saturn to Noom um, that are all becoming these unicorns. The first time at Daniel Eck, you know the story. It was partially because of a place you were working. If you're referring to Billboard, I actually didn't start there until 2013. But tell the story. Um, I was 27, Daniel was 24, and Bill Wordy put us on the 30 under 30 list. And I called up Bill and asked if I could in be introduced to every single person on the list that I knew about six of the people, but I didn't know the others. And I felt like I should know my peers. And I emailed and called every single person on the list over the next two weeks. And Daniel was in Sweden with this company that was just in Sweden called Spotify. And he and I became friends. He was like, this is really cool. You're calling me like Justin's big in Sweden now. So like Justin was starting to explode. That's why I was on the list. And he said, I'm coming to LA. Let's hang out. And we became really good friends. I first met his buddy Shaq, who was kind of his liaison to everybody. And I asked if I can invest, but I really did believe in it. Mm -hmm. And to see it become what it's become today, I encourage all the people coming up to realize you don't want to meet the big wig you admire. You can meet them. They might make you happy or they might disappoint you. Meet your peers. Meet the people you're coming up with who are sitting right next to you with the same big dreams and bet on each other. Because one of the best investments of my life has been Spotify. I was able to get my parents in a little bit of that and that changed their life. So. I would encourage people to reach out to their peers and build those relationships because you never know what it can turn into. So you're also a collector of fine art. What is your take on NFTs? I'm curious. Well, that's kind of a controversial take. <laughs> By all means. My take on NFTs are long-term, they'll be an amazing thing for the masses. Um, long-term, you will have just like in art, in our world, there's going to be mass art and there's going to be fine art and NFTs will have that. Um, I think right now, the industry is not set up for that to be a mass thing. And right now, it's still a fine art thing, but playing within a very small pool, which is what fine art is. Mm -hmm. So for example, most of these NFT platforms, you need a crypto wallet to participate. But most people don't have a crypto wallet. And a lot of these platforms can't validate as fast. So like, I think the biggest auction I've seen is 10,000 people concurrently. Mm -hmm. Yet I think the majority of the people bidding of those 10,000 that were in there were the same four people. So I think you're seeing crypto whales kind of take the news up and they have a lot of cash they're sitting on through their investments in crypto. I think crypto is very, very real. I think Bitcoin is something you should be putting in as part of your portfolio as well as Ethereum. Ripple is gonna probably go public soon. I think platforms like Coinbase and Kraken are incredible. Um, but I think the NFT world still needs to mature. And you're going to see things that are part of history, which is when you look at art, there's some things that are just pure talent, and there are things that were first. You know, Andy Warhol was the first to kind of create the mass production. Um, so his pieces will always be significant. And that's why certain NFTs right now will be significant. But I think a lot of this is growing pains. Who do you go to for business advice? Who's on your speed dial? Um, I have a tremendous amount of trust in my kind of right-hand advisor and David Bolno, who's been like a brother to me for a really long time. Um, He's COO of yeah. SBP? Yeah. Got it. And, uh, and a financial advisor. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, to be able to talk to my investment partners, Andrew and Schuster. Mm-hmm. I think they have a savvy and a brilliance to them that allows me to look at a lot of things. I learned a lot from talking to Howard Marks. I learned a tremendous amount from talking to David Geffen in all things, whether it be art or music or culture or life. Um, he's just, he was the guy I admired the most when I read that book. And then when I was 30, we became friends in the last decade. I actually love the guy. He is family and he has been one of the most incredible voices of wisdom I've ever had. Lucian's been an incredible voice for me over the years. You never know where you're going to get wisdom from. You could talk about where do you get business advice? The wisest people I know aren't wise because of business. One of the assets that you've picked up in the last few years is Atlas Music Publishing, which is home to copyrights on songs by Brandi Carlile, Ed Sheeran, Drake, Nicki Minaj, John Legend. Um, considering how catalog sales are such a hot commodity on Wall Street right now, with everyone from Bob Dylan to Paul Simon, Barry Manilow, selling the publishing rights to their songs for astronomical values, and probably the biggest player in the space is Hypnosis, Song Fund, which is headed by Merc- Mercuriatus, musician-producer Nile Rogers. You've done some business with Hypnosis. Um, you sold 105 songs by producer Andrew Watt for an estimated $45 million. I understand the attractiveness of a big payout to an artist who is, let's say, in the winter of their lives, but Watt is like 30. <laughs> yeah. So what is the thinking behind these deals? I can only speak to Watt's deal, mm-hmm. you know, and every deal is different. It depends what's going on in their life, what they want to get out of it, what are the terms they're being offered. Watt's 30. He was being offered incredible terms by Merck and an incredible valuation. We should mention a few of the songs on which Watt is credited. They include Dua Lipa's Break My Heart, Senorita by Camila Cabello and Shawn Mendes, as well as several tracks on Justin's latest album. And we know that he has a lot more hits coming, and we actually only did it up to a certain amount of songs, and there's a lot of hits he still owns, and a lot of hits he continues to own. You know, he's involved with Peaches, he's involved with Anyone, he's involved with all these other songs. 30 years old, to be able to give yourself the gift of generational wealth, you got to ask yourself, is the royalty that I'm receiving over the next 15 to 20 years, do I want to make money off that royalty or do I want to get all that money up front right now and can I make more money investing it properly? And for him, we decided to get that money now, allow him to invest that money properly, to live the life he wants to live now for the next 15 to 20 years. And he's still in the middle of his career making all these other hits that he can create an annuity and a royalty for his family in the future of that. And if he chooses to sell that, he can as well. Um, So, you know, every deal is different. And we got a really great deal from Merck that allowed him to still participate in the creativity of those songs, but put him in a place where he can put together the proper portfolio and investments that actually are gonna make him more money than waiting for that royalty every single year over the next 15 years. And it's not like his name goes off of those songs or the memories of those songs or the history of those songs. Let's talk about Justin a little bit. Uh, COVID nearly decimated the live music industry, which is slowly coming back to life. And during that time, Justin was supposed to head out on an arena tour. It was canceled the first time, then it was canceled and rescheduled. 
Tell me about like the planning and reconfiguring that goes into rescheduling a tour of this size and how did you guys handle that? For us, it was a blessing in disguise for specifically Justin. I think it was a blessing in disguise for everyone. You know, I think coming out of COVID, there's going to be a lot of changes in a lot of people's lives. And there was a lot of, some people had a really great, wonderful COVID. Some people had wonderful and heartful and everything else and growth coming out of it. But for Justin, he made some of the best music of his life. And he was able to slow down and really heal from a sickness. Um, and, you know, write one of the biggest hits of his entire career with Peaches. So for us, it was about when is the world coming back? When are we going to not reschedule again? When are we going to put it out far enough that we feel comfortable, which was next February? We just were like, no chances here. We're, gonna, we're not going to do this again to the fans. Um, but then we got to put out such great music that, you know, now we have a sold out tour and, and there's a lot of excitement and his performance, I think he's going to give the best performance of his life because I've never seen him so disciplined in preparation in his entire career. And we have some such great music coming from him. So for us, it was let the music lead, slow down. I'm very happy for him because now he is not only excited about the tour, but he's well-rested. He's in the best place he's ever been mentally and physically. And he is just ready for next February. Um, so it was a blessing in disguise. I'm sure you factored in too, because, uh, on his last tour, he kind of struggled towards the end. He had to cancel a bunch of shows. His mental health is obviously really important in situations like this. Yeah, and I think all our artists, whether it be Ariana, Demi, Justin, like they've all gone through some serious stuff, mental health. You know, if you see the J Balvin documentary we just put out with director Matt Heineman, it's so honest and really addresses mental health. I think we factor that in in a big way, but the difference for Justin specifically is he now has Haley. And Allison is doing an amazing job as she has for over a decade with me on really protecting him and making sure he's in the right place. But Haley is such an incredible force in his life and he's always had to tour alone. You know, we could always be there, but it's different. Now he's touring with his wife. Now he has his best friend going on a worldwide vacation with him where he's going to do what he loves a couple days a week and they could see the world together. And I think he's never had that experience before. And I think the two of them are excited for that experience. A decade ago, Never Say Never was released, and it was a huge box office success. It brought in $100 million in its theatrical run. You know, now I look at that movie and the sequel, Believe, as really being trailblazers in the music documentary space. Ariana, Demi Lovato, Jay Balvin, they've all had documentary films or series released um, in the last few years. What's your involvement in these projects, and what's your take on artist-produced content. I think we unfortunately live in a society that would rather believe someone else about someone else's character. You know, we live in this place where like, if I tell you, hey, I'm a good person and this is my truth, you're going to be like, I don't know. I want to go get a reference from someone who barely knows you. Um, and for me, if an artist is willing to tell their truth in a documentary, who better to do that with an honest filmmaker and them giving that person their trust. So I promise you, you saw the real Jay Balvin in that documentary. He gave Matt Heineman so much trust, it made him uncomfortable. I promise you, Demi laid it all out to Michael Ratner. In fact, 
that's probably the only person in the world that they would tell those things to. Um, from Demi discussing the overdose to rape to her childhood to, um, and I'm going to work on my pronouns with Demi, um, something that they have discussed with me and I'm happy to honor and love them to death. I've said this for over 10 years. Mm -hmm. Tell the truth because the fans can see through everything else. And the documentaries are real because of that. And I'd rather have a documentary with an honest filmmaker with someone giving them their trust than someone from a distance who's never had a real conversation with the, the subject giving their speculation on who that person is and what they were thinking. And your involvement? My involvement is, for, the, for Demi's, not till Final Cut. I did an interview and that was it. Because once I, my job is to find the filmmaker they're going to trust. With Justin's most recent ones, Rory and Michael Ratner, they're part of his family now. They're there. You hear Michael's voice in a lot of stuff, even with Demi when he built that trust. Um, you know, Heinemann did the same thing. Ariana, when she just gave her most recent concert documentary, she edited it. Like she just was like, I'm just going to show you this is my life. So my job is to put together the teams that they feel comfortable enough to speak their truth. Once that happens, I step out. Um, so I actually didn't see the Jay Balvin documentary until it came out. Um, I didn't see the Demi one until Final Cut the week before because I don't want to influence it. One thing about Ariana's documentary that I really loved is you really got a sense of how tremendously talented she is as a singer. And also there was like this little clip released of her recording her parts to positions. Yes. Which was so impressive because she's harmonizing these really difficult harmonies. Do you think people just underestimate Ari? Yes, I do. I'm so glad you asked me this question because I'm excited to tell you about how talented she is. When someone does something so exceptionally well with a lot of visibility we gravitate towards that as our explanation of who they are. So she is one of the top pop stars of all time. So we discuss her in that way. But if she decided to never walk on stage, we'd talk about her as one of the top writers in the industry. If she decided to never go on that stage, we'd talk about her as one of the best vocal producers ever. And we'd discuss how this young woman runs Pro Tools and writes and harmonizes and comes up with the visuals. We'd, we'd literally say she's one of the best creative directors in the entire industry. She just happens to also be Ariana Grande. She is that triple, quadruple, 10 time threat. But I am glad you asked because I do want people to realize that she is that good. That Justin really did write Peaches. That Demi does write those songs. That Balvin comes up with that stuff. You know, that... Tori Kelly really sits in her room and comes up with all those instruments and all those patterns and everything else. You know, that Dave really is Little Dicky and Dave, and he's writing that show with Jeff Schaefer and Saladin. And like, he's really that genius. That Andrew Watt plays all those instruments and comes up with that stuff. Like, these are some of the most talented people in the world. Quavo is a ridiculously good producer. And Kid Leroy. We're all talking about what a talented artist he is. He's coming up with these melodies. He's producing these tracks. Unfortunately, as human beings, we compartmentalize things. But don't let anyone ever put you in a box. With Jay Balvin, 
you signed him two years ago, and that would have been right on the heels of Despacito being literally the biggest song of 2017. Luis Fonzi wanted English. He wanted an English star. And Justin was down in Colombia at the time and was like, man, this song's blowing up down here. And I was like, I have the rights to the remix. Do you want to do it? And he's like, you think I should? And I was like, yeah. And we got um, Jay Balvin's guy to cut him and help him with the Spanish. And I was like, I want you to do it in Spanish. And Justin's like, bet. And when I turned it in, both Republic and Luis Fonzi's team were like, no, no, we wanted him to do it in English to cross it over. And I was like, no. Like, this needs to be in Spanish because, one, that helps Justin in the Latin American market. But, two, I knew with Justin and how big the song was that we could get it number one in the U.S. for a week. And all I wanted was it to be number one in the U.S. for a week because Donald Trump had just become the president. And he was making young Mexican and Latin American kids feel like second-class citizens, feel like they were less than because they spoke Spanish. So I wanted the number one song in the country the first summer of Donald Trump's presidency to be a song in Spanish. Like I was driven by this. And Mike Chester, who I know you know well, was our head of promotion at the time. And Republic said, no, it needs to be more English. We talked to John Ivey here in LA who said, I can't play this, it's too much Spanish. And I told everybody, give me two weeks of airplay. And if I'm wrong, I'll get them to go back in and cut it again. But give us two weeks. We were 16 weeks at number one. I didn't even expect that. And... The entire summer of Donald Trump's first year in presidency, the number one song in the country was a song in Spanish. And now, because of that song, there's lots of songs in Spanish on the pop radio all over the U.S. And uh, I feel like that song broke down barriers. And then the next song to break down the barrier was Mi Gente and J Balvin. And then he did it again with Bad Bunny and Cardi B. And like he started breaking down the barriers one after another with him and Bad Bunny. And... Um, when the opportunity came to work with him, I jumped all over it because I think he's an iconic artist. He's one of the most important artists in the world. And he sells out shows all around the world. The thing I respect the most about Jose, the guy speaks perfect English, but he will never sing in anything but Spanish. He could literally make an English album tomorrow, but he won't do it because he says his culture is one of Spanish. And he will always sing in Spanish because he wants to bring his culture to the rest of the world. And his integrity and his loyalty to his culture is something I truly admire. I was thinking about philanthropy, and one thing that's really great, you'll go one-on-one, like you'll walk outside into the audience and hand someone a ticket, you know? And maybe for you, that's just like a tiny sliver of your day, but for that person, it's probably a story they're going to repeat for like the rest of their lives. So I feel like your view of philanthropy can almost come down to that one act but you're also incredibly insistent that your business here have philanthropic components to it. So yeah. explain that to me. Um, well, in Jewish culture, there's something called tzedakah, right. which is you have to always give back. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of grew up with that concept. My mother always really, even when I was throwing parties, she was like, every fourth party can you give to charity. So every fourth party was a charity party. And in our company, we've always given a piece of our proceeds and the things we do. And I've never had an artist fight back. Um, so whether it be make a wish or whether it be giving away money, um, Shauna, who runs our philanthropy department, that's her whole time job. Her full time job is running our family foundation and running the foundation here, helping our artists up foundations doing, we joke around, we make the money, she gives it away and she's incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot Shauna of Nepp. Shauna Nepp. Yeah. And a lot of these amazing campaigns and my philosophy has always been 50% people should see and 50% they shouldn't. 
50% they shouldn't because you know you're doing it for the right reason and that's just for you and for the doing good. And then 50% people should see who cares if they criticize because as many people who will criticize, oh, look, they just want to be seen. There's also another 50% that's watching and saying, I'm inspired by that. I want to go do that too. Um, so you can't let the noise bother you. And for me, you nailed it. My wife is the founder of Fuck Cancer and she's a hero, you know, for the work she does. And at times we look at philanthropy differently and we meet in the middle. Like sometimes I do the big Oprah gesture where I just see somebody and I'm like, I'm just doing this. And she likes to plan it out of like, how do we make the biggest impact? Not necessarily the same one. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was young, my brother and I were in the airport, I think traveling somewhere with our parents. I mean, I'm talking six, seven years old. My brother was five or six. And Carl Lewis, the Olympic runner, was coming through the airport. And he had just won a bunch of gold medals for being the fastest man in the world. And he's walking through the airport and we just spent the summer watching the Olympics. And we remember seeing him, my dad's like, that's Carl Lewis. And we had never seen anyone famous before. We just freaked out. And me and my brother, I remember we kept running past him and stopping and he'd walk past us and then we'd run past him again to say we're the fastest man in the world. And he <laughs> saw us and he smiled at us. He went like this, like a little jerk with his head. And we like, and he smiled at us. I'm 39, about to be 40. I've never forgotten that. And... um. I always say that our every day is someone else's forever. Never take that for granted. So whether it be giving away that one extra ticket or doing that one extra push, you never know the impact you can have on someone else. And Carl Lewis didn't realize the impact he had on me. And somebody who was kind to my grandparents when they immigrated here didn't know the impact they'd have on my life. Like you just don't know. So it's important to put that element in because um, before my grandpa passed, he used to say to me, God's always going to fill your glass up. And if you don't pour that water into other glasses, all it's going to do is spill over the top and make a mess. So keep pouring that water into other glasses so that you don't make a mess and you'll keep getting your glass filled up. So I think that's kind of the way I've always looked at it. So let's talk about your TV projects a little bit, because there's a lot of them. Um, Dave on FX, starring Lil Dicky. Mm -hmm. Dave's a genius. I mean, when Billy Crystal's shouting out this show, mm -hmm. you know you made it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also the biggest comedy ever in FX history. Well, okay, I'm sure artists come up with, like, you know, crazy ideas all the time. Like, how do you know... This is something that we're going to back. We're going to create a show. We're going to take it to a network. Well, that was, a, that was a beautiful thing when the gut ideas come together. When I met Dave, I was hoping he'd want to do a show. When he told me he created Little Dickie and he always saw it as a show like Curb, mm -hmm. it was the same thing I saw. So I was like, it was our, our dreams were aligned. And I was like, let's go. Sometimes you just got to believe in artists. I mean, Justin had a vision for Drew. We backed it. Ariana has some incredible stuff coming that she has visions for. Demi has some incredible stuff. Like, ball, like you just, you hear it and you say, why not? Like, that's always been a philosophy for mine. Why not? Why not us? Why can't we do that? As long as we have the bandwidth, why not try? When you mentioned Drew House, so I just wanted to sort of throw this at you. Did you learn anything about the apparel business from Kanye? Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned a lot being around Kanye. I see colors differently. I see palettes differently because of those years with Kanye. He is a creative genius and he helped me immensely just being around that creative genius. 
I have a tremendous amount of admiration and appreciation for him. Um, and I, I don't have anything bad to say. There's times when we both have been frustrated with each other. To be a student is always exciting for me. You know, just because you're great at one thing doesn't mean you're great at another. Every time you go into something else, you should act as if you're a rookie and try and learn a little bit, but trust your gut. I mean, that's amazing because I always think of fashion as like incredibly difficult, you know, barrier to entry. Like I think everything's a difficult barrier to entry. Trying is the hardest. Giving yourself the confidence to say, I'm going to step out there and put myself out there. That is the hardest barrier to entry, yourself. You know, if you do it, if you try, you're halfway there. And then you got to keep going. Well, what is failure anyway? Like you and I have discussed this. I just want to say this on this podcast because people are listening. Okay, you have an idea and you go for it and you fail. Are you free the next day? Are you waking up breathing and healthy? If you are, have you really failed? Because I can give you a hundred examples of someone in a third world country who still doesn't have an opportunity that next day. I can give you a hundred examples of someone dealing with cancer that isn't having the same freedoms that you have. I can give you a hundred examples of someone who's wrongfully imprisoned and not even getting the opportunity. Like your failing isn't an end destination. It's an opportunity to tell a story later when you're successful. It's like a ski lodge on the way to the top of the mountain. It's a learning experience. And that's hard to understand, especially when you're in it. Like for me, there's things in my life that I'm like, man, I'm a failure at this. And I, and I get so down on myself. And then I'm understanding that like, maybe I'm just not seeing the whole story yet. Maybe I'm not understanding where I'm at, that this isn't necessarily a failure. And it doesn't matter because there are people who are going to say you failed and they're going to doubt you and everything else like that. But no one's going to remember you in a hundred years. So understand how finite that moment is and how finite that person's opinion is. So everything I'm saying to you is something I'm working on on a daily basis myself. I, I can't think of a better ending than that. Well, thanks for having me. You're the best. And I'm going to keep being a work in progress for you. Tune in next week for another episode of Strictly Business. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You deserve to treat yourself, so turn your tax refund into a U-Fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.